So do you know that feeling you get when you've done a lot of work, a lot of good work, and then it somehow gets lost or ruined? Uh, like you're working on a paper and suddenly your computer shuts down and you didn't have it saved. Or you're doing your taxes, it's a big headache, and then you lose all your progress. Uh, you know, it just kind of feels like everything falls apart. And how, how do you feel in that moment? Then imagine that feeling, except with rather than minutes or hours or days of time lost, imagine years of your life's work being undone, uh, the frustration being multiplied exponentially. And, 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 and if you had, you know, some sense of calling, some sense of, you know, this is a responsibility that God had given me, uh, it would be all, all the more difficult to, to grapple with that loss. Uh, w- would you want to, like, throw some stuff? Uh, tear into someone verbally, uh, you know, put them in their place. Would you, would you be ready to fight, you know, curse them, hit them, pull out their hair? Uh, Nehemiah did all that in chapter 13. So get excited. (laughs) Chapter 13, that's what's coming. Um, But before we do that, I I just want to provide a quick refresher. This is the end of a story. This is the end of the story of Nehemiah. And so I want to do a quick refresher of the first 12 chapters. God called Nehemiah to rebuild a wall. This wall was the city's defense system. And they, Nehemiah did it with all of, uh, the whole community, all the Jews, all the Israelites, the whole community. They rebuilt this wall in the face of a lot of opposition. And specifically two names that I want to trigger back in your mind. We haven't heard these names for a couple months is Tobiah and Sanballat. They were enemies opposing the work, along with other peoples, okay? It wasn't just those two, it was, it was surrounding nations, but Tobiah, Sanballat, file those away for later. And, and God's people successfully rebuilt this wall in chapter 6, and uh, the story continued because it wasn't uh, just about the wall. The story of Nehemiah is about a whole lot more than the wall. And so, so what Nehemiah does after the wall is he, he appoints leaders, and he establishes these leaders in God's people so that when Nehemiah leaves, God's people don't totally fall apart, right? He, he's trying to restore a broken people, not just a broken wall. He's, he's trying to be used by God towards that purpose. And, and these people, they, they got back into God's law, and they made these commitments like, uh, we will uh, keep the Sabbath. We will remain pure. We will give uh, like God's, God's law calls us to give. We're, we're going to live these commitments out together. So they were we will commitments. And we looked at that in chapter 10. And, and then at last week, they dedicated the wall and they had this huge party that uh, the, the, the noise could be heard from a long way away. So, so that was Nehemiah chapter 12, which, which leads us to Nehemiah 13, when all this progress is lost in 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 large part and and so we've seen throughout the book brokenness being restored together and now at the end we're going to see uh the restoration broken together (laughs) um so let's just read the text and and then we'll dive in on that day i think so a little bit of context this day that they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, I think it was the celebration of the wall. Okay, so, so we pick up chapter 13 where chapter 12 left off. 
They, they read the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, in the hearing of all the people. And it was found written there that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because back in those days of Moses, they didn't meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but instead they hired Balaam, a prophet. They hired a prophet to curse God's people, but God turned that curse into a blessing. And so, so when the people heard this, like written in the law, they said, okay, we want to do that. We want to we obey. So, so they separated um, all those of foreign descent from Israel. And now, in verse 4, the timeline changes. It says, before this, before Nehemiah returns, here's what happened. Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers, the rooms of the house of God, which was the temple. Eliashib was related to Tobiah, and Eliashib prepared for Tobiah a large room where previously they'd put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, all this stuff needed for the worship, all this stuff that God had set, set up for, for worshiping him. And then in verse 6, while this was taking place, while they, they moved the stuff out and they moved the enemy in, Tobiah, uh, Nehemiah gives us context. I wasn't in Jerusalem for this because I was the cupbearer to the king and I had to go back to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. I asked the king if I could go back to my people in Jerusalem. And I came to Jerusalem and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw, here's the first thing, he threw it all out. He threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the room and he gave orders for that chamber to be cleansed and, and brought back in the stuff that God wanted in that room. So, so he, he's throwing stuff, right? <laughs> he's angry, very angry. Verse 10 continues. He, this, this wasn't the only brokenness that he saw when he returned. He also found out that the portions of the Levites, they hadn't been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who who were supposed to be doing this work of worship, they, they just went to their fields to make a living. And so I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And, and, and that should remind us at the end of chapter 10, when all these people made the commitments, we will do this, we will do this. At their last commitment is we will not neglect, we will not forsake the house of our God. And so Nehemiah is calling them on it. And he's saying, Why? Is the house of God forsaken? And, and what he does is he gathers them together and he sets up their stations and, and Judah brought the tithe. He, he basically made everything right. He said, you'd committed to doing this and then you stopped doing this and it all fell apart. And so I'm bringing it back together. And he ends this section by praying to God in verse 14 saying, remember me, oh my God, concerning this and don't wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. But that wasn't the end of the brokenness. He continues to walk through the city and he sees brokenness in the marketplace. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they'd brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day they sold food Tyrians also who lived in the city, they brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. And I confronted the people, I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So Nehemiah is not only rebuking them, but he's also saying the reason that our wall was broken down in the first place was because we disobeyed God just like you're doing right now. And you're inviting more of that onto us with your actions. So let's continue in verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors would be shut. So, so Nehemiah has taken action to stop this sin. So shut the doors and I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. You can't buy if they can't sell. In verse 20, then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of goods and wares, they, they, they stayed outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I said to them, why are you doing that? If you do this again, I'm going to lay hands on you. So threat to, you know, I'm going to shake you up. Good. Uh, from that time, they didn't come on the Sabbath anymore. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember, and, so, and then he prays again. Remember also in my favor, O God, remember this, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. But there's more brokenness that he comes across as he walks through the city. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't even speak our own language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat them and pulled out their hair. He pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take your daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Didn't Solomon, king of Israel, sin just like this on account of foreign women? And he was like a great king. Among him, there was no one else in all the nations. And he was beloved by his God. God made him king, but nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. So, should we listen to you and, and, and do all this great evil and act treacherously against God by marrying foreign women? And one of the grandsons of the high priest Eliashib, one of the grandsons was the son-in-law of Sanballat, another enemy that had already opposed God's people. And, and so old man Nehemiah chased young grandson, just chased him. <laughs> uh because he was upset that, you know, the grandson of the high priest is, is, is related to Sanballat. They're, they're choosing to intermarry with the, inter, with the enemy. And, and Nehemiah prays again, remember them, oh my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so Nehemiah said, I, I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And that's the end of Nehemiah. It is a story of great brokenness being restored, and it is a story of great restoration being broken. And so, why? Why does it all fall apart at the end? And if you've been around church, if you're familiar with the gospel, you might think, uh, well, it's because they're sinners. And that's absolutely true. 
But these sinners had made some progress. So why so much regress after so much progress? What changed between Nehemiah 1 through 12 and Nehemiah 13? What changed? Nehemiah's presence changed. He had to go back. He was a cupbearer. He was on loan from the king for 12 years. He had to go back. He didn't have a choice. So I don't think it was Nehemiah's fault. He established other leaders. But here is what, what, what changed other than Nehemiah's presence is their relationships with each other changed. Their relationships changed. Because brokenness was restored together, it wasn't just Nehemiah. It was all of them walking with God together. Brokenness happens together too. It, re- it recurs together. Relapse happens together. So the commitments that they made together in chapter 10, they kept together through chapter 12, and they broke together in chapter 13. In short, if you remember the, the message from chapter 10 where they made these we will commitments, we will, we will, we will, they stopped. <laughs> they stopped holding each other to the commitments that they'd made. And so it was on everyone, everyone who was present. It was on all of them. Because they'd all committed to live this way and then they all broke their commitments together. So I, I'm going to walk you through some types of illustrations that were helpful to me as I thought about this. I hope they're helpful to you. I hope they make sense. But uh, I, I want to try to explain them through the story of Nehemiah. It started like this with a dependent relationship. And those sticks represent people. So that's why I'm not an artist. Um, the vertical line is like Nehemiah. He's the leader and he's who the people relied on. Like they got discouraged when they built that wall and they relied heavily on Nehemiah during that time. And, and dependent relationships, they're, they're healthy for a time. It, it's okay. Like examples of dependent relationships are if you're a new hire at work or if you're working with a new hire, they are dependent on you to get caught up to speed and to become useful to the company and to, you know, kind of, to, to know their way around, know the expectations, know their responsibilities. It's a, it's a dependent relationship, but it, it's only for a time. You don't, you don't want them asking you questions that they should know six months, a year, a year and a half down the line. Uh, children are another dependent relationship. And the goal of parents is not so that the children are always dependent on their parents, but so that the children themselves uh, can, can walk and, and become capable leaders so that they can teach others and ultimately so that they wouldn't trust their parents but trust Christ. So, so the people relied on Nehemiah and, uh, and, and it was a kind of a dependent relationship at first. So um, the, the next uh, picture depicts in, inter, interdependent relationships. And I think this is where Nehemiah was trying to move them uh, in chapter 8, when he introduced them to God's law, he, he was trying to say like, okay, you, you've been relying on me, but you need to rely on God and rely on each other. That's why he appointed all these other leaders um, in, in chapters 7 through 12. All these other leaders were mentioned by name because Nehemiah and, and even today, God's people are called to live lives of interdependence. Ultimately, 
uh, depending on God as our leader. And, and God's law was what, uh, what they were to rely on back then, but now we know that Christ has come and fulfilled the law in our place. So, so this is a relationship with a shared purpose. It's, it's together and it's involved. And, and, you, and you feel some, some if, if you're in an in, interdependent relationship and, and someone like leaves, you, you feel that, but you're not crushed by it, okay? Um, because it's not totally dependent. So uh, they've been making progress towards this. And I think this is what Nehemiah was intentionally leading them into. And, and even Nehemiah, as, as you read the story, he's kind of fading into the background in the latter half of the story. He's not mentioned as much. Um, I, th- I think it's on purpose uh, until chapter 13 when he's pulling people's hair out. Uh, so, so, so that's where he wanted to move them. But I think what happened after Nehemiah left was rather than in, in, in interdependent relationship, both, both, both parties are responsible. I think what happened instead was codependent relationship started to happen. And this is a relationship of enabling where if you're the leader, uh, you're not really helping the follower to stand up on their own, to, to take responsibility. Uh, and if you're the follower, you're not really calling the leader out on anything. Uh, this is always an unhealthy relationship. Uh, codependency has been referred to as the disease of lost self. So at the core of codependent behavior there, there's this refusal to acknowledge a problem. It's like, we're all good. You know, like, th- there's no problems here. Um, and, and I think that's exactly how they got into this uh, epidemic of brokenness that we see in chapter 13. Nobody called Eliashib on his son and grandson marrying foreign women. Nobody called the other men on that being a sin. Nobody, like the, the Levites and the singers who didn't get their, the, they, they weren't given what they needed to carry out their roles. It, it doesn't record anything about them saying, hey guys, uh, we can't carry on this work that we committed to together if, if you don't fulfill your commitment to give. And uh, instead they just walked out and went to their fields. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, nobody was calling Eliashib on, on, on hosting Tobiah in the temple uh, when he shouldn't have. Uh, n- nobody's calling anybody on anything. You know, it, disease of lost self. We're, we're all good. Just do whatever you want. Um, uh, codependent relationships, I think, is how they got to the place of brokenness that, that, that they were in, that we see in chapter 13. So there, there's one other type of relationship, which um, just to kind of throw that out there for you, I think I think it happened with the Levites and the singers when they went to their own field. They they just lived independently. Uh, independent relationship is is real no relationship at all. It's just like yeah, kind of kind of know you, um, but I don't need you. <laughs> and that's there's no biblical precedent for this being the lifestyle of God's people. It might sound nice, but it's it's very proud to assume that you don't need others and that others uh, don't need you in their life. So, so w- with all those pictures, uh, what would best describe your relationship with people? What, what picture? Um, here's, here's some examples. An independent would say, you can be a Christian without having a church home because you really don't need others. It's, it's just kind of optional to, to have others in your life. That's what an independent would say. That's just an example. An enabler would say, 
a co in, in a codependent relationship, it, it doesn't matter if you're living in sin, uh, as long as you're happy, you know, it, it, you know, I'll just enable you to do whatever you want. Um, as you know, and I want you to enable me to do whatever I want. And a, a dependent would say something like, and this is just an example, but you know, I, I really don't feel close to God unless someone else takes me to that place where I feel close to God, unless I listen to this person or listen to that music. And, and all that's really good and helpful. I mean, like, but uh, that, that's a dependent relationship. If, if you need someone else to, um, you know, help you experience closeness with God. Uh, interdependence is the way that God has designed his people to function. It's, it's the we will relationship of, of leaning in to relationship with God together and, and leaning on each other, but ultimately leaning on Christ. And so, so in the New Testament, we see this picture Paul uses of the body and, you know, the hand and the knee. And he uses this to, to paint a picture of the local church and how the local church is supposed to be many different parts, but all those parts work together. Um, and so the eye wants to see, but if the knee gives out, it affects the eye's ability to see. It, it affects the viewpoint. And so uh, interdependence, this is the way that God has designed his people to function, uh, empowering each other as we rely on Christ. And, and I think even with unbelievers, interdependence is the way that we best reach out to them. We're, we're leaning into Jesus and we're, we're praying and hoping uh, that, that Christ would in fact reach out to them through, through our relationship with them. Um, so, so relationships, you know, the, all these models, all I'm trying to say is uh, relationships exist for Jesus, not for you, not for me, not for us, but they exist, they exist for Christ. And if we really believe that, here, here's, here's a very specific application. If you believe that all relationships exist for Christ, the very best thing you can do for any relationship is grow in your love for Jesus, for your marriage, for your upcoming marriage, for your marriage that you don't know if it'll ever happen because you're single, for kids or for future kids that you're hoping to have. The very best thing you can do for your lost friends, for your family members, for your coworkers, the very best thing you can do is grow in your love for Jesus. And after Easter, we're going we're gonna to start a series focusing on that, growing in our love for Jesus. It just doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process. But it is incredibly impactful. It, it, it has implications for all of our life. Because our presence, like what we bring into a room, who we are, it, it impacts people in ways that we can't always pick up. But it does impact people. And so Nehemiah's lack of presence, we see his impact very, very clearly. And the way that they got there, the way that they got into this codependent relationship with each other, relationships enabling sin rather than challenging it and, and encouraging them towards godliness, is, is just choices. It's just simple daily choices. And so, so this model has been... Uh, 
used before. You've, some of you might have heard of this. This is a right-hand, left-hand column living model. And so when you think about your relationships, uh, don't sweat the stuff that you are not responsible for, like how other people think, what other people say, how other people act, how they respond. You're, you're not responsible for their actions. You're responsible for yours. So, so we focus on the right-hand column, and we trust God with both. This is, this is one way to pursue healthy relationships because it takes two, but you can just control your side. It, it takes two people for a relationship to be healthy, but all you can do is control your part. So, so you focus on the right. You focus on what you're responsible for, your attitude, thoughts, your words, your actions, but you trust God with, with, with all of it. And so trust looks different on the right-hand column versus the left-hand column. And how God's people relate to each other, it has enormous impact. Uh, Nehemiah, and I think this is Nehemiah's biggest fault, and we've discussed this throughout the series. His biggest fault was that he didn't live like God's people were to be a light to the nations. And that was clear from the very beginning. Uh, that God's people are to be a light to the nations, but instead they end up here at the end blending into darkness, hosting hosting the enemies of God in the house of God, uh, marrying their former enemies, and half the kids aren't even learning God's culture. The kids aren't even being raised uh, in ways that point them to the Lord. It, they don't even know the language, half of them, is what it says. And so all this to say, all of us are going to influence or be influenced. We're going to be compelling people or we're going to be compelled. And, and we get to choose. Which will it be? It's, it's the same predicament for us today. We are called to be a light to the nations. And one way that they know that is by the way that we love each other as Christians. And so your relationship with God, it, it, it does have implications and ramifications for every part of your life, whether it's for good or for ill. And so I just, I'd, I'd encourage you to, as you think about those relationships, think about it in terms of right-hand and left-hand column living, what you, what you are responsible for and what you're not. Because in conclusion, as we look at Nehemiah 13, uh, we are the people. We, the, the people represent us. Um, we're hopeless on our own. We, we need a leader to stay with us and keep us on track. We can't have a leader who's, 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 who's like Nehemiah. And, and again, it's not his fault, but he had to leave. We can't be left alone <laughs> or else we will derail. And that's what Nehemiah points us ahead to, is an even better leader who never leaves us. He, he points us to Jesus. And Jesus, did, he's not just inviting you to have your sins forgiven when you follow him. He's inviting you to a new kind of life. A life with him as your king, where, where his presence, the fact that he's with you, that makes all the difference. It really does make all the difference. And so, so we learn, we learn to live with him. We learn to live with him in the brokenness of the world, 
in the brokenness of our own souls. And we see brokenness restored together because part of the together is with him. So let's, let's pray together. Jesus, I know I'm, I'm living with you, but I want to learn under you how to live with you. I, I want to learn afresh your ways and, and to embrace the new life that I have with you. I pray that you'd show me now, show us that just the next step What's the next step following you? We want to include other people in that process in this journey appropriately and, and and God we just confess we believe that in five months and five years if we put our yes on the table we're going to be different people you, you're going to restore us you're going to restore the broken parts of us and you're going to use us to be a light to the nations But the goal is, is you, Jesus. <laughs> we want you. And so we pray that our focus wouldn't even be being a light to the nations, but it would be loving you and knowing you more personally. And just, just following your leadership as we, as we each take next steps.